Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, we'll report from the world's leading property fair, MIPIN. One of the most important purposes lately is really to foster the right conversation regarding the context, the challenges and how this can be solved and can, and can be addressed. So it's not only about business and networking, it's about learning. Plus, an intimacy coordinator tells us how to do it. I come from you know, a fight director background, so I tend to work very practically with actors. And, and we get specific about you know, what hands are going where, you know, what our breath work is looking like, what our vocals sound like. And you know, just typically like you know, the beginning, middle and end of this journey that these actors are going on. All that and more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. But to start the show, a highlight from the foreign desk. We'll hear now from Ingrida Shimoniti, the Prime Minister of Lithuania. Andrew Muller began by asking her if she thinks that the rest of Europe has finally started listening to the Baltic states about Russia's true nature and understanding that it's not just another European country. Well, I hear a lot of credit for the fact that we've been warning our friends and partners and that this was not as some critics were putting that, this was not our trauma speaking, but that was a rationality behind this, because we also heard those, you know, this is your trauma speaking. So yeah, sometimes uh, your historical past might weigh on you in quite a productive way. But this also brought us an ability to see what maybe other countries were not seeing properly, because they were betting on this idea that you can trade Russia into civilization. The bad thing was that we still let democratic world, we still let Putin do whatever he wants inside the country, meaning corrupt, capitalize on all the welfare that, I mean, on assets that belongs to the people. But well, people were thinking, oh, as long as we can deal with him like on a high level, then it doesn't matter what happens inside. But that mattered a lot because it built the circumstances for Russia to become what it is now, a country that can attack the other country and where the society remains deaf and dumb on what is happening. And there is no resilience, no, no protest, no nothing. And it seems like whatever sanctions you impose on Russia, nobody even screams because it seems like we are becoming stronger. It's better. Of course, this is a pose. Then we must understand this. But I mean, it's good that we stopped thinking that Putin is a politician in a Western sense of view, an accountable one. He's not accountable. Just to pick up on that, that idea that the rest of Europe, Western Europe in particular, has at last understood that Vladimir Putin does not necessarily think about things the same way they do. Do you see a same, the same disconnect in this kind of anguished incrementalism we've seen about equipping Ukraine and arming Ukraine, worrying that every next step, whether it's tanks, whether it's missiles, whether it's aircraft, is going to be the escalation that for some reason or other Russia finds intolerable. Do you think Vladimir Putin actually cares about any of these red lines that the West keeps drawing for itself? Yeah, I'm sure he doesn't, because in so many cases, 
he or his people around him on their uh, social media and everywhere were saying, this will be a red line, that will be a red line, and this will be a red line. And whatever happened, there was no real reaction. But on the other hand, anytime he doesn't like the situation, he steps out and says, I have a nuclear bomb here. So why don't you listen? And, you know, I think it has a completely parallel sort of track, the track that we think and the track that he's thinking, because he's not be stopped if Western countries decide not to provide weapons. I mean, that would be delusional to think. And on the other side, you cannot calculate his steps, because in many cases, they are, well, hardly explained by uh, conventional logic. We know that all the destruction of energy systems started when there was an incident on the Kerch Bridge. And that was pure revenge. And then he decided he will take this attack against the civilians, not the military people, but the civilians, Ukrainian society. And in the meantime, when European countries discuss, can we send leopards or can we send something else? It has nothing to do with what Putin is planning with his chief commanders. Just finally then, later this year, Lithuania will of course be hosting the NATO summit. It will be Jens Stoltenberg's last summit as Secretary General. He has confirmed that he is leaving in October. Do you think it is possibly time that NATO had a secretary general who was not only a woman, but possibly from the eastern, dare I say, the Baltic states, perhaps a current or former, let's say, current holder of high office? Well, I know that in circumstances like that, there are so many <laughs> names flying very high. And at the end of the day, uh, it might be a, a name that nobody was expecting even to hear. So this is, I hope that secretary general for next term will be equally strong and unifying, able to unify the alliance vis-a-vis the threats that we face. But there are quite many good candidates for that, I think. And now we're off to Cannes, where more than 23,000 participants have descended into the Palais du Festival to take part in MIPPING, the world's leading trade fair for real estate and property. The event gathers developers, investors, planners and local leaders to discuss and decide the future of our built environment. Nicolas Kozubak is the director of MIPPING, and earlier, Monaco's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck had a chance to catch up with him to find out more about this year's edition of the event. But first, Nicolas began by talking about the regions of particular interest. So the core markets are, are really uh, the, the, the European markets, the Western European markets mainly, uh, but uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, Egypt, these countries are more and more loyal because uh, they uh, like the exposure they can have to the real estate industry at MIPIM. So it's been now several years they, they are coming in, in a row. And uh, yeah, we appreciate that participation. And in, in a way, they, they show some uh, very innovative uh, development projects. So I think it's important to give them a, a stage here. And tell me, what do you think is the purpose of MIPIM? So I've spoken to people and said, oh, we're here because we're, we're raising money. Other people have said, no, no, we're not raising any money. It's just about visibility. <laughs> Some people said, oh, it's, we, we have to fight to get life sciences to come to our city. That's why we're here. Yeah. What, what do, you th- do you think of it as a property fair? What do you think of it as, a, as its task? It's very difficult. You know, there's no, not one answer, and this is uh, what you realized. Obviously, the, the, the core origin of MIPIM wa- was really uh, uh, developers to find uh, uh, to, to find investors, 
those who wanted to develop their projects, wanted to find some business partners, and this created what we call a market at some point. But it expanded in many different directions. We know that many companies uh, feel like it's important to showcase what they have to do, not only for uh, fundraising, but uh, just uh, out of uh, notoriety. Uh, we know that the cities and the territories uh, are really an important component because they, they, they want to be part of the conversation regarding how the cities will evolve obviously, so they are at the heart of the show. Uh, so it, it's, it's really a mix, and uh, one of the most important purposes lately is really to foster the right conversation regarding uh, the context, the challenges, and how this can be solved and can, and can be addressed. So it's not only about business and networking, it's about learning. It's an important component and we want to develop it, especially in uh, some special times like these ones. I'm sure people are more honest with you than a journalist. They probably tell you what is worrying them. What, what do you think is on their mind? Because we spoke to some people who said, look, it's, it's tricky out there. The, it, the capital markets are frozen. We can't raise money for projects in the way we used to. Other people saying, look, it's great we're having all these environmental changes in our cities, but it's actually making it really difficult to build residential in many cities. What, 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 what are things people telling you in your ear that, that they're concerned about the world of property? I think that this moment is a transitional moment because most of the participants, most of the cities and territories know that we're living a, a situation of change and that some things need to shift. We need to shift toward more sustainability in all projects. We need to shift toward more user experience and user centricity in, in, the, in the projects. So it's how you make this change happen, especially when you have some assets that are potentially not as adapted to the future to come. So how you reconvert this, how you think about uh, this transition. It's the most important question that is raised to me and I think it's uh, even above the macroeconomic context. It's more like shaping the future for the five, ten years to come. This is what I say here. We're obviously interested in the debate about what's going to happen to our cities. You know, many city cores have lost uh, retail, they've lost some residences, people have moved out to the suburbs. There's a lot of competition here between all the cities. Everyone we've spoken to is like, okay, we're here really to fly the flag and to, uh, to try and turn around our city post-pandemic. Is that another conversation that you're finding that city leaders are here thinking about what they need to do as well? What, what is interesting to me is that they, they, they don't tell me about competition. They tell me about collaboration. Like yesterday, we had a political leader summit with uh, 25 uh, mayors and deputy mayors of European cities. And uh, actually, the feedback I had from them is that they were really happy to take time together, to discuss trends together, and to find ways of collaboration together. And if it was, uh, as you said, kind of a competition, I'm sure they would not be very happy to, uh, <laughs> to, to spend some time together. So I was discussing, for example, with the mayor of Hanover, this morning and it, it was his first, his first time and he was really happy to connect with the mayor of Helsinki, the mayor of Riga because they were there. So this is not competition for me, it's just like inspiration, learning from the other. And then, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, they, they want to attract some uh, specific profiles. But uh, I think they are, they are here on a really positive basis. And finally, could you just tell me the, the value of MIPIM to Cannes? It's extraordinary when you go by where every restaurant at night is now full. <laughs> the number of people standing outside some of the bars is extraordinary. A lot of magnums of rosé wine already being drunk at five o'clock. What's the value to the city of you being here? 
Yeah, you know Cannes is uh, well known for his uh, exhibition uh, focus. You have the film festival, you have plenty of things happening. So uh, I think it, it has become in the DNA of the, the city. And uh, as a company, Arex has uh, plenty of events in Cannes every year. MIPIM is, uh, is one of the most important, obviously. So we are happy to, to generate some uh, uh, dynamics uh, for the city of Cannes. They are great partners, uh, historical partners. MIPIM is more than 30 years old, same place. So that's great. If we can uh, contribute to local developments this way, we are happy with it. You are listening to the curator of Monaco 24, and now it's time for celebration. It's the Global Countdown. We reached its 100th episode. And for this special moment, we're heading to Sweden, a country that knows very well about pop music. And in fact, they are the favorites to win Eurovision this year. Let's have a listen. We are going to Sweden, which is always a treat. I call them pop masters because they are. Excellent. Uh, expect a lot of Eurovision chat uh, today, oh, Emma, okay. because Sweden, they chose their act for Eurovision through the Melody Festival, which is their own kind of festival to choose who is going to represent Sweden at the big stage. You mean they don't have someone who you've never heard of foisted on them from nowhere like uh, some other countries do? Exactly, exactly. Excellent. Well done, Sweden. Uh, but let's start at number five. Now, this, uh, is, this is someone who had a go, isn't it? He did have Ago. Not all of them in like, this chart uh, you know, the tried. Man, a man who sort of looks, a, well, how dare I say, he's like sort of Harry Styles before he worked out what could happen in his trousers. Yeah, I mean, it's his age as well. He's only 17. Mm. Uh, his, his name is Theos and he was fifth uh, at the Melody Festival in this year. But the song is doing very well at the charts. And, you know, I think I'm practicing my Swedish well. We're going to hear this track. It's called Mer Av Day, which is More of You by Theos. Let's have a listen. Look, if you're listening to that, I'm really sorry. You're going to be thinking you're going to be singing that all day. It's one of those. But he's a, he's this, he's this little lad, isn't he? I felt quite maternal towards him when his when his big trousers and backing dancers. But the Swedes are great with his melodies. And and one thing I think you know a few Swedes as well, Emma. They all know how to sing because they've they've done <laughs> music classes. Literally everyone. Like my friend one day she started singing. I was like, oh my god, Madeleine, I didn't know you could sing national, that well. Uh, and she's not exactly uh, right. Let's go to something less melodic now. Number four, a bit angrier, a little. A bit more angsty teen bedroom. Absolutely. And they actually had a go as well for the Melody Festival. And, and it's a rock song or an electro rock song, as I like to call. But it's very rare for Sweden to send a rock act uh, to Eurovision. So, yeah, they, uh, you know, they didn't win. But the Swedes like that as well. It's The band's called Smash Into Pieces. Of course, it, it should. And the name of the song is Six Feet Under.
Well, that's a fabulously forgettable piece of music. Well, thank you for that. I'm glad you didn't win well at the festival, and let's say that it was third place. You wouldn't have liked that in uh, in Liverpool this year, would you? No, 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 no. no. Faye's going to Eurovision, ladies and gentlemen. We're yes. going to be hearing a lot of that. <laughs> okay, so that's the uh, that's them. Uh, number three. Number three. It was not at the middle of the festival, and it's been quite a few weeks actually in the charts. I mean, I'll play a clip because there's a little story to, to uh, about this track. Uh, it's by Rasmus Gozzi with Read Me Some. M. Dalahast, which is Ride Me Like a Dala Horse. Ride Me Like a What? Yeah, a Dala Horse, which is a specific type of Swedish horse, I believe. <laughs> Let's have a listen. <laughs> Goodness me, those three are doing more than singing there, aren't they? So, um, <laughs> yes, I don't know quite what to say about that. We've had a pr- we've had a pronunciation correction from our producer, Marcus Hippie. It's a Dala Hest, is that right, Dala Marcus? Hest. Right, thumbs up from there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the present- pronunciation is the thing that we're, that's making us think the way that we're thinking, is it? Yeah, I'm really sorry for the, you know, crude uh, translation. But um, <laughs> w- one thing i got to tell you, this is a new type of music. It's called Epadunk, which basically... Epadunk? Epadunk, I believe. <laughs> so basically, it's... I don't an, believe you're saying that. It's on. songs about alcohol, sex and cars. And more specifically, something called an A-tractor, which the the youth in Sweden, they love it. They're kind of modified cars and they have controlled speed and they they look a, a bit, bit like weird. A tractor. Yeah, a bit of a tractor but a mixture of a car is like a hybrid. Uh, so it's a very... Drunk tractor sex. Exactly. It's Excellent. a very specific movement very specific. that's happening in Sweden at the moment. Goodness me, Sweden. You know how to have fun. <laughs> right, I don't know what to do now. Uh, should we have number two? It's quite serious actually after, but let's have a listen. He's actually the most famous Swedish uh, rapper uh, uh, at this moment. Uh, his name is Yasin and the song's called Har Day. Have you? Vem som du jag vet att du har min dyk så jag har dig Vem som du jag vet att du har min dyk så jag har dig Det är långt för att jag kommer hem Fast i en loop om och om igen Det är långt för att jag kommer hem Vi är fast i en loop om och om igen Vem som du jag vet att du har min dyk så jag har dig Vem som du jag vet att du har min dyk så jag har dig Ballin av Yes, it is an interesting story here, Emma, because he's been detained for 10 months for an attempted kidnapping of a fellow rapper, uh, Finan. So he does have a lot of problems uh, with the police. But even with all this kind of complication, he's still uh, Sweden's most popular rapper. And and he's doing very well uh, at the charts as well. So it's an an interesting one. Uh, People people seem to love him, actually. Finally. Finally, number I mean, one. That's why I chose to do Sweden this year because Sweden once again is the favorite to win Eurovision this year. But this time, Lorraine is back. Uh, she's the I one. I didn't know she'd ever gone away. Remind us who Lorraine is yes. in case she's not been in like on constant play on our on our system. She's definitely being. I mean, it's one of the most iconic Eurovision tracks of all time. She won back in 2012 with Euphoria. I mean. That song was amazing. Uh, and in fact, uh, then the show was hosted 
hosted in Malmo in 2013. That was my first Eurovision that I've attended working. Oh. So, you know, Lorraine has a special place in my heart and she's the favorite this year. I don't think Tattoo, the song we're going to hear now, is as good as Euphoria, but it's kind of a grower. This is, this is Sweden's entry for Eurovision. All yes. right, um, everybody have a listen. Here we go. a builder fake because we, yes. were, we were all getting quite excited and ready yeah. to jump out of our seats. You had goosebumps, Emma, I, I have to goosebumps, say. I had goosebumps, which is the Nelson test of quality. But the thing is, if Lorraine wins, she will have two Eurovision Song Contest, two trophies. Only Johnny Logan for Ireland had Only that. Johnny Logan. Yes. They'll be tight. They will be tight. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Our new book, Spain, the Monocle Handbook, is out now. To celebrate, we have launch events at our Zurich HQ on Thursday the 16th of March and here at Midori House in London on Thursday the 28th. Tickets include a copy of the book, a glass or two of wine, and some tasty tapas too. There'll be talks by Spain's ambassadors to Switzerland and the UK. Get your invite now. Head to monocle.com forward slash events. And now I have a starry recipe from the executive chef of London's 45 Park Lane, who was chosen to cook at this year's Oscars. He gives us an insight into one of his dishes. Start off with a normal potato, like a Maris Piper. Cut it into whatever chip size you want. You, can, this is, you don't need to be too stressed out about this. Keep it simple. Boil them in a pan in salted water. Drain it off once it's come to the boil. Do the same process again. Once you've done that, put them aside and just let them cool down naturally. While they're cooling down, before we go to cook the, the whole dish, pea puree, you can use mushy peas from a tin or you can get some green peas, petit pois, whatever you want. Boil them in a pan with some onions, drop a little bit of mint in there when they're cooked and give them a gentle blitz with a blender or you can just do it with a fork, whatever you want. Keep it really easy and simple. Salt and pepper, lots of black pepper. So now you've got your chips blanched, you've got your pea puree. Your haddock is probably the key ingredient. Always leave the skin on. If you don't leave the skin on, the fish just dries out. A lot of people don't think about the skin. You can always cook it with the skin, and then you can just not eat the skin. So beer batter. So you've got your fish. Cut it into the portion size as you want. Probably goujon size for this. Your beer batter. Use Dove's gluten-free flour. Sparkling water in there or just a bit of beer. Me personally, I think tempura, like a tempura style batter is really good. So Dove's gluten-free flour, um, sparkling water. If you just get that to a good consistency, not too thick. So now you've got your, your chips blanched, you've got your fish, you've got your pea puree, and then you just need your tartar sauce. So your tartar sauce, get some Hellman's mayonnaise, chopped parsley, gherkins, capers, and again, lots of pepper. Your chips and your fish... Fry your chips at 180 degrees until they're really, really crispy. 
your fish, add it into the batter, and then fry that till golden brown. Again, it should be super crispy. Once your chips are golden brown and your, your fish is golden brown, take it out, drain it off, lots of cracked black pepper and salt over the top. Serve that with your pea puree, tartar sauce, wedge of lemon, and you must have a wooden fork. That makes it taste much better. And that's it, really. Simple. You were listening to The Curator, and we were just talking about Oscars there. This week on The Stack was a bit of a cinema special, and I had the pleasure to speak with Charles Finch. He's the editor-in-chief of A Rabbit's Foot, a beautiful new publication for all the cinephiles out there. Let's have a listen. First of all, Charles, as a method of introduction, you've been very close to the film industry for years now. Did you always wanted to do like a print product about the industry that you've worked on? Well, it's a, it's a good question. And it actually, for once, comes out of sort of a necessity in a way. Because in my time in the movie business, obviously, there's always been very successful brand to brand, business to business, I'm sorry, business to business publications like Variety or The Hollywood Reporter or Screen. And to some extent, even Cahiers du Cinema is quite inward looking or was even when. But over the years, those premier magazines, studio magazine, they've all ceased existing other than the business to business ones. And so I felt that there was a definite hole in the market and also more than a hole in the market because nobody starts a print publication in 2023 or 22 in our case with a sort of business plan to suddenly, you know, make a huge amount of money. You have to do these things because you feel great passion for whatever the subject is. So number one, there was nothing remaining in the market that I felt really was about filmmaking or at least had filmmaking at its core. And I see a rabbit's foot as sort of film at the center, but really art and culture as a sort of as brothers and sisters sitting alongside it. And as the magazine grows, actually, the book part of the magazine will grow, as will the sort of story part, which in this issue you see is already taking more space with the stories of Africa, etc. So, And then the art part. So I think it'll balance out more so it is more culturally full. And there isn't really that that exists either. So I thought, anyway, to cut a long story short, I thought, I thought, my God, why is there not a publication that is celebrating work that is so important to me? And I love, I was telling you before we started, Charles, I love the, the scale of it. I mean, it feels quite ambitious. I hear, I'm here with the latest issue, issue number three. It's almost 300 page, you know, and, yeah. and, and that's fantastic, you know, because for me, you know, I love film and I see the magazines becoming quite slimmer and slimmer. And sometimes no wonder people go digitally, but this is something that you need to hold, right? I mean, it's, it's heavy. Tell us, did you want it, that as well? Well, uh, there's a hint in the name of the job that is prescribed to me, which is editor. And I'm not particularly good at the editing bit. So it probably should actually be considerably thinner. This issue this time of year will, in fact, be the largest issue. And it's, you know, as you know, it's got Oliver Stone, Oliver Stone and Darren Aronofsky, Ken Loach, Nabeen Labaki, Todd Field, Ai Weiwei, Abel Farah, I mean, you know, Don McCullough, there's a huge amount of people. And probably a more seasoned editor, because I've never edited a thing in my life. See, most, I mean, I've written for a lot of publications, as you know, and written movies and stuff. 
but I've never edited anything. So a more seasoned editor would probably say, listen, you know, commission less, be a little bit more focused. I think we'll always try and have, you know, really 30 good stories anyway in the physical publication. The digital monthly publication will be more focused in terms of one profile, what's happening around town in art, film and culture, and much, much more focused, but still on the same theme. And we'll still do a big September issue. As you said, it's about 300 and something pages. Anyway, there's a lot to say, so it's hard to resist getting carried away, swept away. Please don't start editing too much because I love that. I love the number of pages, the indulgence of it all, because it is physically is a very beautiful product as well. And tell us a bit more about the basics. How often the magazine will come out? And every issue has a theme, right? I know you explored French cinema, Italian cinema, and now the power of film and how cinema can change things as well. Well, so the physical printed version will come out four times a year and with some sort of structured reasoning. This issue come, came out in February so that it would coincide with the Oscar, BAFTA, the award season, if you want, and which will carry it through to the Cannes Film Festival in May. And so the next issue will be in May, and then we'll do a September issue so that we're sort of in parallel to what's happening in the big points in the movie or in the entertainment world, and as well in the art world, because they tend to follow each other, these things. And then the digital will be, there's a digital platform now, www.a-rabbitfoot.com. That's, at the moment, you get four articles for free and then you have to subscribe. We're changing that. So there'll still be four articles from the written publication and then you must subscribe to buy the books and get the full content. But the website alone will stand as a standalone free with its own monthly information, with its own long-form stories, so that you know people can have a view of both. And maybe there'll be a fifth one every now and then if I suddenly decide to do a rabbit's foot car journey. You know, I think, so the bigger aim of a rabbit's foot, the brand, if you want, for want of a better word, is for it to publish ultimately other work as well beyond the magazine. So I, my desire is, I live in a world where there are a lot of screenplays that are not realized. For example, Christopher Hampton this morning was talking about Nostromo, his script from the Joseph Conrad novel, which he worked on with David Lean and he and Spielberg later, and it's never been made into a movie, and I probably think it won't be made into a movie for a number of reasons. So I wouldn't mind publishing that. It has actually been published, but I would have published something like that. And as Quentin Tarantino has now adapted from writing movies, he's also writing books. And so I think, so there's interesting, sort of a bigger vision to this. So the magazine, the events around the magazine, we just had our Power of Film event, which is about, this theme was about, and this, this issue was about how film can create a cultural debate because it's seen by a much wider audience than than usually books or theater today. It can have such a cultural impact. So we celebrated that by two days of talks and discussions in London with important filmmakers like Ken Loach and, and other people like that. So I think I'm opening the door to being another publishing house that will look to cross over people working in movies and art into, into a printed word as well. 
That's fantastic. And, and, and tell us a bit more, Charles, you're an entrepreneurial man. And what about in terms of the business side? I see the magazine has some, you know, not, you know, a lot of ads that would kind of bother us to read, but you have Chanel, you have Hermes as well. You have very important brands collaborating. How does that process work? Do they also help in the making of the magazine too? No, they, they don't help in the making of the magazine, but I mean, I had a long term. So my world is divided up into five sort of uh, little, you know, sections, if you want. And the first section was always film. So I have a film company that I just finished co-producing Sofia Coppola's new movie, uh, Priscilla, through my deal at Columbia, but with Lorenzo Mieli at, and Fremantle and his company, The Apartment. So, you know, we're always making movies, developing movies anyway, as a producer. And I started the business as a writer, then as a director, and then ultimately a managed artist and then became a film producer. So that's one sort of silo of my life that has a staff and is very, you know, is, I'm very protective of. It's not, I wouldn't say, I don't have the desire to make that into a big film company or I would have, you know, raised the money to do that or gone on, on a journey like that. More that companies positioning is to do sort of exquisite films that are more art house or independent and one or two big studio movies as well which is why i'm in business with columbia so there's a sort of bridge i also sit on the board of movie and i'm a shareholder in movie.com which is probably the most important is the most important streaming platform for independent film today so film is really central to my life so that's why the extension of that interest came into this publication And then the second part of my life was the representation of talent, which I don't do anymore. But for many, many years, I, I had Kate Blanchett, John Malkovich, and, and Willem Dafoe, many stars. So when I got out of that business 15 years ago, I still retained the other part of my representation business, which was the brand marketing part, because I'd become so interested, you know, almost quarter of a century ago, 25 years ago, in how actors and brands and entertainment companies and brands could work together either on commercial opportunity or in the funding of entertainment or so those long-term relationships like i've had with chanel or other Hermes or other brands obviously they're going to be a first port of call and there's a long decades long trust factor involved which is more and more important today So they felt very comfortable that I would do something good. And Chanel actually bravely supported it from the beginning. So they were the first people. And so when you have Chanel as the first person, then probably other, and Hermes is the second person. I mean, that's pretty damn good, isn't it? And from there you can build, and we have Armani now and Montclair and, and Prada and other people like that. So I think I've also found that I never approached it as a straightforward advertising project to me. It was always, you know, these are brands that are companies that I've had really long history with that are really genuinely interested in arts and artisanal work. So I had to, I have to feel that there's, I mean, you couldn't, Hermes is, and Chanel, they're sort of, are they commerce only? No, they are really artisanally both you know so i think there's a lot of similarities i felt comfortable and they felt comfortable with me and that helps with the costs 
of, of printing and publication. It doesn't cover all of the costs, obviously. So we fund that internally through our own, our own internal investment. There are no outside investors. It's all funded in, by me, basically. And now a highlight from Monaco's brand new travel show, The Concierge, out every Wednesday. And we're heading to Sweden. Every episode of the show, we have a segment called Dining Districts, where we walk you through some of Monaco's favorite culinary districts. And this week, entrepreneur Fia Gullickson meets sommelier Ben Robinson for a gastronomic tour of her hometown, Ostersund, in Jantland, central Sweden. They start in Jaschirkat, a restaurant Fia founded 10 years ago and which Ben now runs. Hello! Hey, hey Ben! How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm <laughs> good. I guess I should start by saying I'm from the UK. And yeah, I originally came to Sweden four years ago now to work at Favikan. I think food lovers knows about Favikin. Yes. One of the world's best restaurants. Yes, about an hour from here, I guess. Yeah. Magnus Nilsson yeah. was the creative mind behind the whole thing and the head chef. Exactly. But let's go and have some lunch, I think. And here, when you pass in the hallway, there's a piano. The real kin, we come straight away to our fish counter. Nordic oysters. Exactly, fantastic oysters all available. We continue down onto the meat counter, Fjellku, mountain cow. You can only find it originally, I think, here in Jämtland and in Harjedalen. And yes. it's a bit smaller cow, but the quality of the meat and the quality of the milk is amazing. It is. Yeah, it's yummy. So we, we tried a little bit of that, and now we're going to move on. And this region is very sparsely populated. We're about 125,000 people, but so many small restaurants and bars and uh, very unique small little shops also, not just shopping centers. So now we're actually walking into another courtyard called Norra Station, which means the North Station. Station. They have their own coffee roastery, they also collaborate with the local art members club. So each month there is a new um, art exhibition in here. <laughs> Mane is the owner of uh, Norra Station. Here you serve uh, a lot of Swedish fika. It's kind of like the Nordic afternoon tea, but we do it all day. All day, exactly. Yeah, not just in, in the afternoon. We have a nine o'clock fika, could be coffee and a sweet yeah, or a sandwich. And, and we have what we call the Jamplan pudding. Uh, it's actually a Portuguese uh, cookie that we serve with lingonberry. We rename it as the, the Jämtland pudding. So let's go through here. And this is actually Manne's sister and her husband, Anna Karin. She sells chocolates. So when you're in Östersund, this is a must stop. You have to go to Tealogot and buy some local chocolates. And they're filled with some berries. The brown cheese. Yes, uh, mesmer, goat cheese. Yes, sov. Oh, the yeah, the yeah, Yes. Oh, wow. Now we come into uh, Marcus Isso's Big Lake Coffee and Smitten's. Hello. Hey. Yeah. We Very were together at 
South Bank Center. Yeah. We did a, a festival called the Great Nordic Feast. Yes, it was great. And you were there Ex- doing absolutely. Swedish fire coffee, yeah. cook cafe. Can yeah. you explain it a bit uh, Yeah, more? so I think if you really want to break it down, it's it's immersion. It's an immersion brew. And using a fire also is uh, rather interesting because you... Birch would preferably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to have, to have the right heat as well. Do you want something then? No, I'm fine. Honestly. Drive home last night was not as fun. In the blizzard and all the oh, wind yeah, and... Was... Yeah. I think that's the beauty of Östersund too, is it's the connection to nature. I have the opportunity to live right on the lake. So I just take on my skis and take the dog. Here we are passing a um, place called Via de Marks and it's actually the home of where they invented smörgåstårta. It's a sandwich layered cake. One of the weirdest things ever. <laughs> and it's actually like a surf and turf. So you have shrimps and you have mixed with ham, but it's a perfect thing when you have a party with a lot of different age groups. It was invented here in the 50s by a baker. And in the corner of the square, we have slaktan and they buy in whole animals and three days a week they open up a wine bar. And so Peter Benneson, he ran a restaurant in Stockholm called 19 Glasses, Nitton Glas, for many years. And now you take the train up every Wednesday, right? And you serve fantastic wines. I'm looking at the fridge quite enviously. We're getting served something here. Just uh, heated up the sobrasada to release the taste of the fat. Mm. Thank you, Peter. We're also just passing by Bua, which is a, another exquisite little restaurant. Orange wine on the tap. And I think we finish off to just hear the sound when we walk on the white snowy street in Östersund. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Join Marcus Hippie for The Menu, bringing you Monocle24's recipe for the best in drinking and dining. We make entertaining a doddle. It's incredibly easy to make. With expert opinions. You can use fish fillets, which you grill in the oven or pan fry. A bit of seasoning. Lots of lime, a lot of cracked pepper, and a bit of good olive oil. And plenty of spice. And then you cook it in caraway and seven spice, as well as something sweet. Then you take a big pot of mascarpone and spoon it into your egg yolk. And maybe even a little bit nuts. You take it out, you top it with some pine nuts and you're good to go. It's a recipe that's guaranteed to impress. It's slightly controversial, but it's the one thing that has surprised the most people when they eat it. Premiering live on Monocle 24 every Friday at 2000 London time or downloadable wherever you get your podcasts. 
You're listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. And now, lucky Christopher Lord visits one of Frank Lloyd Wright's most impressive Californian creations, the first piece of modern U.S. architecture to make it onto UNESCO's World Heritage List. Perched on a hill high above Los Angeles, the Hollyhock House is a monument to the perils of an ambitious project. It ran wildly over budget when it was built. The client didn't particularly like it, and the flat roofs could be leaky. Yet the Hollyhock, which reopened last year after an extensive restoration, inadvertently brought together several architects who would have so much influence on the built environment of this city. It also represents some of the first seedings setting the stage for what became known as Californian modernism. Stage setting was important to Frank Lloyd Wright when, in 1919, he was commissioned to design an LA home for the oil heiress and experimental theatre practitioner Aline Barnsdall. The house was intended as the centrepiece for a 36-acre arts complex with theatres, cinemas and artist residences. Walk through the Hollyhock and it unfolds theatrically from narrow stone passageways to voluminous rooms panelled with Japanese screen paintings through to an open-air central courtyard. In the living room is a grand fireplace that used to have a moat of water running around it, unfortunately long since run dry. The garden fountain is evocative of an amphitheatre and the flat roofs would allow for impromptu performances by Barnstall and her daughter. Yet the most theatrical element of this house is that it's a bit like walking into a temple. The central motif, the hollyhock, a tall and upright flower, has in Wright's vision been transformed into an angular feathery form in carved stone on the exterior that feels somehow Mayan or Aztec. Abby Chamberlain Brack is curator of the Hollyhock House. This project is the first that Wright did in Los Angeles, and he's really grappling with what building types for the American Southwest should be with this commission in particular. He referred to the house as California Romanza, and Romanza is a musical term meaning free form. I think that embracing the theatrical component of the Barnstall Commission, he's really leaning heavily on indigenous building traditions, most notably, of course, the pre-Hispanic, but we've also got flat, livable roof terraces that may be evoking Pueblo architectural traditions. He's taking forms from ancient Maya, from Aztec, that were being published in the period that he was building, and also forms that he was seeing at World's Fairs. Of course, he never acknowledged these outside influences, but there's really no, no denying that the cast stonework here and the canted upper walls of the exterior, these really imposing facades, are looking to these earlier building precedents. At the time, Wright was also working on the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, which incorporated influences of the so-called Mayan revival. Yet he was distracted by that vast project and put his son Lloyd in charge of overseeing construction in LA. By then, however, the timeline had totally run over. The costs ballooned to three times the budget. And in 1921, after several disagreements with Frank Lloyd Wright on the designs, Barnstall sacked the master architect. At the time, Wright employed a young architect called Rudolf Schindler, who would go on to create many of LA's most iconic modernist buildings. 
when the project started to run out of control, Schindler was brought from Wright's uh, Midwest office to take the reins on the work. And he continued to make contributions to the main house even after Wright left the project in 1921. You can see his hand very clearly in many of the details, especially for Residence A, the guest house that we're in the process of restoring. This commission is what brought Schindler to Los Angeles, and you can see so many through lines between his work. Richard Neutra was also involved in developments for the site. Barnstall ultimately never lived all that long in the Hollyhock. Her arts complex was never fully realized, and she gifted the unfinished house to the city in 1927. It became the headquarters for the California Art Club until the 1940s, when it sat vacant and was almost condemned. Fortunately, it was saved, but it didn't become a museum till the 1970s, and in 2019 was inscribed on UNESCO's World Heritage List, still the only building in LA on there. The house, in some return to its original intentions, has recently begun hosting works by contemporary artists. Yet the way in which the Hollyhock came to be mirrors some of the drama that the patron had hoped to create around her home. This stirring structure was a stage set for three key residential architects to converge. Frank Lloyd Wright, Rudolf Schindler, and Richard Neutra. All three would go on to have so much influence on LA's built environment, which in the 1920s was very much a nascent city. Here's Abby Chamberlain Brack again. Here from this Olive Hillside location, we do have views out at the Hollywood sign, the observatory, but the house predates all of these monuments. We can see Ennis House, which is one of Wright's famed textile blockhouses. We can now look out at the larger influence that Wright's work had on the development of the landscape around this site. And we had a very fun episode of Monocon Culture this week discussing sex and cinema. For this episode, we had an intimacy coordinator who tell us more about this crucial new role on film sets. Finally on today's show, in the wake of the Time's Up and Me Too movements, a new role on film and TV sets has been created. Intimacy coordinators are now integral to film sets. I caught up with Lizzie Talbot, whose credits include TV shows like Bridgerton and Anatomy of a Scandal, and films including Bros and Fire Island. First and foremost, our listeners will not forgive me for really asking what are the nuts and bolts of being an intimacy coordinator on set? Sure. Well, I think it's sort of broken down into three elements, really. You've got our advocation part of the role, where we're really there to support and advocate for the cast and the crew during scenes of an intimate nature. And that can be anything from, you know, traditionally nudity and simulated sex to kissing to like domestic violence, all that kind of stuff. We're there to help facilitate those scenes. The Second aspect is the liaison. Because we work with so many different departments, you know, from stunts, hair and makeup, you know, costume, VFX, you know, we work with so many different departments on set that our job really <laughs> involves a lot of liaison between them and making sure that everyone has like a bird's eye view of the intimate scene and what to expect on the day. And the lastly, and most honestly, most important part of the role is the choreography. Because obviously, you know, it's it's often like physicality between two people. It's a physical storytelling of like an intimate journey. And part of our role is, and a huge part of our role, is to like facilitate that choreography. 
that's an excellent point to make. And I think something perhaps that some people ride roughshod over, that latter point, Lizzie, the choreographic element to it, that your job is not to police, I presume, police behaviour on a set and in a scene, but to give people the guardrails. I'm sure there is a bit of that. But it's also to make sure it's convincing without being explicit or uncomfortable for the performers. You have an almost directorial role during those scenes of an intimate nature, I presume. It's very collaborative with the director. I mean, in the same way that a stunt coordinator would work with a director or a movement director would work with a director, we have a very much a collaborative approach, well, certainly I do anyway, of, of working with a director. So I often say to them, it's, it's their party and I'm attending, right? So that they've got the creative vision for the scene. It's my job to help them tell that in a way that's, you know, safe and dynamic for, for everyone involved. I think that's really where my, my role sits. And honestly, I, I do believe it, the choreography is, is such an important part of the role because as the you know, general advocacy across the industry for you know, safer intimacy on screen rises, I really believe that you know, intimacy coordinators need to really focus on, on the choreography because if we are in five years' time, if we're seen as the only people who are advocating for actors on set, one, that's incorrect because so many people for such a long time have advocated for actors. It's just you know, squarely sits within our role now. But also, you know, like <laughs> the, the whole of the industry should, should step up and should rise with it as opposed to just us being seen as the only advocates. And, and quite honestly, like it, it is that that is happening, which is which is really great. And I just wonder, scenes are written often in office rooms, you know, from the pen of men and women who don't necessarily know who's going to be playing the roles that they mm -hmm. concoct, that they dream up. I know a script those goes through a lot of changes and script directions and, and the direction goes through a lot of changes as well and it meets the reality of the film set. But I wonder how, or I wonder if you've ever had to kind of remake a scene, practically remake a scene from the writer's intention or even sometimes from the director's intention in order to make it a safer place for the performers to, to, to be in. I think that massively depends on the script because, you know, sometimes it'll be written in the script, they have sex. <laughs> and that's and that's really what, what you have to go on. And so at that point, it's, you know, that it'll just be as blunt as that. And so at that point, you really have to have that. That's when the discussion with the director comes in about what, what do they see this uh, relationship looking like? You know, what's what's the power dynamic here between, you know, these two characters? What's the history? What story are we, are we trying to tell between them? And so obviously when a scene's written like that, there's a huge scope for, you know, what you can do there. It's massive. And on other scripts, you know, it will be down to like a finite detail of exactly what is happening. So in terms of like rewriting, like that's not specifically my job. If there's something that I think, you know, might be you know, outside an actor's boundary or, you know, something that we might just have to shift and change, like I might offer it. But again, I don't typically, you know, rewrite anything. Yeah, no, it's, I suppose it's an interesting thing, though, when it's simply the direction is they have sex. You've got, mm -hmm. it's a sort of how long is a piece of string <laughs> thing. And I suppose Correct. it depends on the director's vision and the comfort of the performers, I suppose, as well. I wasn't Absolutely. suggesting you got your red pen out necessarily, but there is, <laughs> practically speaking, though, you might do, might you, with with how you, you perform your practice. And just to get a sense of 
of the sort of, as I say, the, the practicality of that, Lizzie, are you kind of taking people's hands and saying this, you can put your hand here, or one actor is saying to the other, you can do this, you can do that? I wonder if if it is as nuts and bolts as that, you are there on hand to, to talk to people if they feel less comfortable or if, if two people who are a little bit confused by having to do something that tends to be behind closed doors in front of a crew of people, simply look your way and mm-hmm. ask for some reassurance or some guidance. In terms of those examples, where on the sliding scale mm-hmm. is, is most of your work done? So typically what, what we do is we start off and we have like the conversations with the actors very early on, like in pre-production. We'll be having the conversations with the actors about what they're comfortable with, boundaries they have, all those sorts of things. And so from there, we'll get like a very clear idea with conversations um, with the director about what the scene's supposed to look like. And then typically in rehearsals, that's really where we play around. And I think rehearsals is such a huge part of our role. I never really want to turn up on set and like shoot. It's it's really important to get that rehearsal time in because that's when we can play around and find out what works, what doesn't, you know, sometimes images in people's heads aren't the same when you actually practically uh, like choreograph it in person. And so I think it turns into a very practical role uh, like during rehearsals and then, you know, when we're on set. And I come from, you know, a, a fight fight director background so I I tend to work very practically with actors and and we get specific about you know what hands are going where you know what our breath work is looking like uh, what our vocals sound like and you know just typically like you know the beginning middle and end of this of this journey that these actors are going on and so yeah sometimes it does get very very practical but you know as it should you know it's a physical storytelling in the same way that like a dancer or a fight would be and of course <laughs> with fights you're very specific because you don't want anyone to improvise that and it's the same thing here and that's all we've got time for this week's edition of the curator the show is produced by san Impi and presented by me fernando augusto pacheco join us again next week thank you for listening <laughs>